Okay. Thank you all for coming. Um, and uh, if you'd silence your cell phones, we would appreciate it. And of course, we are here for our panelists to, to discuss pillage crimes, which was made an international uh, crime in the Geneva Convention. And of course, it's codified in the Rome Statute, which set up the International Criminal Court as a war crime. And we shall begin, let me introduce, uh, uh, with Holly. Holly is a senior legal analyst at the Sentry, an investigative initiative of the Enough Project, where she focuses on war crimes, financing, and accountability in East and Central Africa. She's a lawyer specializing in international criminal law, and she has a background in war crimes litigation, including insisting on the case of the former President Charles Taylor and cases against Guatemalan government officials for forced disappearance and genocide. Holly was a consultant at the International Criminal Court's Chief Prosecutor in 2008 and a consultant to the Truth Commission effort in Peru and Paraguay. She was a Fulbright Scholar in Guatemala where she investigated the impacts of transitional justice there. And the last time we did a panel with Holly, she arrived straight from the Congo, looking <laughs> like she had just come out of a bandbox. It was amazing. And then we're pleased to have Jamil Mandima, who's the Director of Program Design and Partner Relations at the African Wildlife Foundation, AWF. He's a Zimbabwean national who has more than 20 years experience working on wildlife conservation and he also... I think the mic is... Oh, I would just bring that closer. It's on. Okay. Sorry. It's on. You can hear me, right? No. Oh, another plus of the Bar Association. I wonder if it's on. Is there something that turns it on? I think you just have to get a little get closer. Get closer, okay. And you can, pull, you can pull it out and hold it. Oh, all right. You can pull it up and hold it. Oh, all right. Okay, I feel like I'm performing. Um, at any rate, Jimmy L. worked uh, as a research scientist with the University of Zimbabwe, and he's been with African Wildlife Foundation for 14 years leading field programs in the Zambezi uh, Basin. And now he applies his field experience by representing AWF in policy discussions with the U.S. government and other organizations, the World Bank, the IMF. And he also serves as the focal point for programming to combat illegal wildlife trafficking. And he has a wonderful petition to stop Trump from defunding the wildlife tracking. It's on the website for African Wildlife Foundation. You can find it. And Carly Obuth was good enough to come. She's a policy advisor at Global Witness 
which is an international organization that aims to break the link between natural resources and conflict and corruption. She's focused on the role of business in curbing the trade of conflict resources, and she is the lead researcher and main author of Digging for Transparency, a report that was done with Amnesty International. She's also an experienced advocate on Capitol Hill and has led Global Witnesses' efforts to uphold supply chain due diligence requirements for companies and Section 1502 of the U.S. law, which aims to control the sourcing of conflict minerals. And she can also talk about the attempts to defund it. Uh, and, and last but certainly not least, we have Karen. I want to get her whole Karen Odaba Misoto who's the head of the liaison office of the International Criminal Court to the UN. Prior to that, she was legal advisor to the permanent mission of Kenyan to the UN and Kenya's representative to the Sixth Committee of the General Assembly and the Third Committee, which focuses on human rights. Previously, she served the government of Kenya in various capacities including as legal officer in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and senior state counsel in the office of the Attorney General, in which capacity she represented Kenya in numerous international conferences. And she is going to tell us about the historic uh, International Criminal Court case, uh, which convicted al-Amadi for destroying historic uh, monuments in Timbuktu. But first, before we go into that, if I can figure, I want to show you this video that was done by Catherine Bigelow, who you know directed the award-winning uh, Hurt Locker movie. So let's look at this.
And Holly, do you want to talk about the nexus between the poaching and financing militias and terrorism? Yes, sure. Um, Um, thanks so much for everyone being here um, and to Elizabeth for inviting me and the New York Bar Association for holding the event. Um, it's bittersweet to come back year after year and speak on um, this panel. Um, it's great that it's garnering a lot of attention, this issue of natural resources and how, it, how they fuel armed conflict in East and Central Africa, but obviously um, horrible that it remains as relevant as it does year after year, um, and this year is no exception. In fact, a lot of the threats are getting worse. Um, I'm here uh, sort of duly representing the Enough Project, which is an a policy and advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C., founded in around 2006-2007, um, as well as our newer investigative initiative called The Century, which was launched um, about two years ago. Uh, and Just sit here and watch videos all night. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, I needed. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. I'm just going to keep, keep going. Um, so, both organizations focus on the financing of atrocities in East and Central Africa um, using public campaigns, field research, um, investigative reporting and um, compiling evidence of the nexus between um, financing and natural resource trading and uh, some of the deadliest armed conflicts on earth. Um, our country focuses are uh, pretty narrow. We do just focus on Sudan, South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and the Central African Republic. Um, really with that sort of laser focus on some of the worst um, atrocities that are getting the least amount of international attention. Um, in terms of the poaching nexus, um, we have been investigating the links between poaching and armed conflict for almost 10 years now. Um, early on in advocacy around these issues, I think most would agree that conservation and um, poaching was really an environmental issue primarily, um, and, and also that armed groups operating in Central Africa and East Africa were not seen um, as interested in business. They were seen as sort of ill-equipped, ragtag organizations that weren't very sophisticated. Um, but over the years, it has become clear that wildlife trafficking is as much about violent conflict and human toll as it is about conservation and environmental, uh, the environmentalist agenda. Um, and on the other side, um, it's very clear now that armed groups are actually very sophisticated networks that are um, driven in part by business interests in the region. Um, our first reporting on poaching started uh, when we started to see um, that the Lord's Resistance Army was using ivory trafficking and elephant poaching as a, as a major source of income. Um, the Lord's Resistance Army, of course, is known for its brutality against civilians um, in northern Uganda originally. 
uh, and now across the Central African Republic and the DRC, and its infamous leader, Joseph Kony, um, who is still at large, but indicted by the International Criminal Court. Um, the reality is that ivory and other wildlife trafficking has provided financing to a range of other violent groups, not just the LRA. Um, Catherine's film pointed out some of the other groups. Um, poaching and wildlife trafficking helps finance the FDLR, which is one of the most pr prominent um, rebel groups in DRC, um, civilian poaching groups in South Sudan, and pastoralists in Congo. Ivory is favored currency among the Selika, which is a militia operating in the Central African Republic, and the Janjaweed in Sudan. All these groups are actively involved in poaching. Um, to give you a sense of the violence associated with these operations, um, even officials in the South Sudanese army have been implicated in poaching. And um, just last week, the UN released a new report exposing um, the South Sudan some South Sudanese uh, security forces involvement in incredible violence against civilians, uh, in particular rampant sexual violence. Um, conflict in the Central African Republic, um, fueled in part by the Salika militias, has forced at least a million people to flee their homes, either, to, either becoming refugees or um, internally displaced. And though the LRA is um, drastically diminished from its height um, back in the early 2000s. It's still active and it's still deadly. In fact, um, attacks by the Lord's Resistance Army, especially in the Central African Republic, has surged um, this past year during 2017. Um, and again, Joseph Kony operates with impunity. <coughs> Ivory and other wildlife products are very valuable um, and rule of law is either too weak in these areas to stop poaching and trafficking or um, the very enforcement authorities that are supposed to be um, carrying out rule of law and stopping ivory trafficking and poaching are actually involved in the trade. Um, and as a result, you know, state and rebel armies have this reliable stream of income to fund their violent operations. Um, wildlife trade in East and Central Africa, I think, has become, in a lot of folks' minds, akin to the drug trade in Central and South America. It's uh, complex, it's inextricably linked with other, um, other reasons for conflict. Um, it's, it operates across borders, it um, relies on sophisticated networks of national authorities, um, companies in freight and export and trading. Um, and you know it involves a, a huge amount of coordination under the eye of a lot of authorities that could take action, um, but don't. Uh, and research shows that global um, corridors for wildlife trafficking in ivory are the same corridors that um, drug traffickers use, traffickers of um, folks involved in human trafficking um, and arms trafficking are also using. So a lot of the same pathways um, are used for all of these different commodities. Um, and you know, like trading drugs and arms, the numbers are high in terms of value, probably higher than, than most people know. Um, rhino horn, for example, can sell on the international market for more than the same amount of cocaine. And currency is measured in different ways depending on which market you're in. But um, for example, ivory is worth $110 US dollars per pound in the Ugandan black market. Um, on the global market, it's worth about between 500 and 1500 US dollars per pound. 
Um, that kind of boils down to each elephant at around 20 pounds of ivory per elephant, um, around 10 per tusk, um, could yield $30,000 on the international market. And that's distributed among a lot of different actors in the chain, um, but essentially kill one elephant and it's 30,000 $30, US dollars. Um, a single large elephant tusk in South Sudan could be traded for um, 25 boxes of bullets in, in the case of, uh, you know, kind of a field officer or commander of a group like the LRA, um, or sold on, and, and then later sold on the international market for $20,000. Um, and, you know, when it comes to African element, elephants, as Jamil will talk about, uh, these numbers add up to the real possibility of extinction. The DRC elephant population has diminished at least 75% since 96, according to park officials in Congo, um, and national parks in the region, especially Garamba in DRC and Lantoto in South Sudan, are teeming with uh, violent militias, whether they're organized formal armed groups or um, informal groups of poachers. During the 1980s, there were 20,000 elephants in Garamba, which is in the northeast of Congo, um, today, there are roughly a 1,000. I think it might even be less. Um, and since 2012, in both, Cong both Garamba and in South Sudan, um, there's been around a, an average of 100 elephants poached every year. Um, so it's, it, the rates are, um, are really nerve-wracking for those of us watching the, the populations. Now, um, it bears mention that the same groups trafficking in ivory are also engaged in other environmental crime. Uh, we conducted a major investigation in Africa's oldest national park, Virunga, which you might know from the documentary, and um, found that there were charcoal cartels um, operating inside the park, uh, armed groups deforesting old growth forest and turning the wood into charcoal um, and trading it for a pretty good price and using that money to continue their operations. And the trades themselves, including poaching, ivory trafficking by the LRA, the charcoal trafficking in, in Congo, um, operate on violence. So it's not just about financing violence um, once the profits come in. Um, the, the business itself requires violence. So we, uh, you know, we know that these groups um, have systematic kidnapping forced labor, including um, forcing children to work, and sexual slavery actually built into the, the way that they do business. Um, so I want to talk about a couple of other problems and then a few reasons to be hopeful. Um, so number one, corruption is an essential ingredient to all of this. Uh, corruption enables all aspects of illegal wildlife crimes. Um, and part of the profits from the trade are recycled back into bribes to officials all along the supply chain. Um, regional authorities are implicated. We uh, did some reporting that revealed that Uganda in particular um, has been very complicit in the ivory trafficking networks coming out of Congo. Um, according to an internal audit in 2014 of the Uganda Wildlife Authority's stock room, they found that um, uh, 1.35 metric tons of ivory um, from elephants had gone missing over the past five years. So um, again, just indications that authorities that are supposed to be um, upholding the rule of law are actually part of the problem. 
Um, number three, the financiers of poaching and trafficking networks are often in the shadows. They're um, criminal networks in East Asia and Southeast Asia, um, further to the north in Africa, and they are often the ones profiting the most. These are um, individuals, companies, organizations that may never even see the materials themselves, but um, they are profiting, and so more needs to be done to find those um, actors in the supply chain and, and use um, whatever legal authorities can be levied against them um, to end impunity. And then last, investigating these networks is extremely dangerous and I would say has become more and more dangerous. Um, you know, as the conservation world has become wise to the financing element of it and the, and the terror financing na nature of this, um, these trades, it's become riskier to investigate. Um, you know, we've lost a couple of real giants in the field. Esmond Bradley Martin, who was an American, was killed very recently in Nairobi. It's unclear whether or not the death was connected to his work, but he was a pioneer in fighting traffic, uh, poach, uh, excuse me, ivory trafficking networks, especially um, on the issue of financing and doing really quantitative research on the issue. Um, and last year, Rain, Wayne Lauder, who's a South African, um, also major conservationist, was killed in, in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, um, and it's thought to be, it was thought to be um, a threat against the work that he was doing. Um, so one la my, I'll wrap up by saying there's silver lining to, um, to some of the overlaps that I've talked about. Um, and you know, the power of advocacy on this issue is only getting stronger as we draw connections between human toll and um, species, threats to species, threats to human populations, um, and the terror financing issue. So um, when we began collaborating with environmental groups, it, it was really exciting. Um, we were able to talk to policymakers who cared more about, you know, conservation and saving forests and saving species than then, you know, and human rights wasn't really there on their agenda, and vice versa. We had conservation groups coming to us and saying, can you come with us to meetings and explain that this has to do with human cost and even counter-terror policy, um, and we were able to do that. So um, by sort of zeroing in on that dual threat, there has been some success. In 2015, um, the U.S. passed the Global Anti-Trafficking Act um, that was a major legislative win um, for the issue. It strengthened um, wildlife enforcement networks in the region. Um, it exposed countries that were failing to uh, make efforts to combat wildlife trafficking. And it increased the penalties for wildlife trafficking into the U.S. Um, it actually made uh, ivory trafficking a predicate crime to money laundering. Global Magnitsky is also um, a U.S. law that was passed in 2016 that um, creates channels for the U.S. to sanction individuals for um, acts of corruption anywhere in the world and abuses against whistleblowers. Um, and that really connects strongly here because um, that includes, you know, in folks that are blowing the whistle on environmental crime by um, state authorities. Um, and then last, last point, um, late last year, two fairly high-level individuals affiliated with the LRA Okot Lekwang and Musa Hatari were sanctioned by the U.S. primarily for their um, activities in ivory trafficking for the LRA. So I'll leave it there and um, 
and look forward to questions. Jimmy L. Mandim is going to tell us about AWF's preventative measures and some of the domestic legislation and the conventions. May, may and you, and we have to you. change seats because he has a PowerPoint. A PowerPoint, I want to manipulate. Yes. Again, uh, good evening, everyone, and uh, it's good to be with like-minded folks to talk about these kinds of pillage. Um, what I would do, I think you know, Holly T did very well to, to explain why this is happening and the complexities and linkages to security. So I'll just walk you through what we are doing as part of the conservation community to combat the crime of illegal wildlife trafficking. So let's hope technology doesn't play around with me. <laughs> it should be okay. Okay. So, maybe I done it. Are you able to hear me from the back? Great. Um, so I, I'll just kind of tee off a couple of strategies we are rolling out to combat poaching, the trafficking, and also to sensitize the market side of issues for people not to buy illicit ivory. But quickly, without me wanting to take it for granted, you know what African Wildlife Foundation is about. It's a fairly old organization that was formed back in 1961 at the point when Africa was getting independent and the idea was to build the capacity of Africans, independent Africa, to become champions and leaders in conservation. Uh, we have a home office in Nairobi, Kenya, so we are truly African. International Board of Trustees and a small staff of 200, the majority of whom are Africans. The mission is really to see how wildlife and wildlands will thrive in modern Africa. We are moving from a, a paradigm where conservation was seen as being anti-development or modernization, but say as Africans, how do we ensure that this resource that is so unique can contribute to the economic growth? So vision is to see how wildlife and wildlands can actually be seen as assets. But we know from what Holly just went through, this is, these are assets that are being stolen from Africa. These are assets that, bank, that are actually pushing the agenda of syndicates, not in any way changing the livelihoods. And finally, we believe that when we look at Africa across jurisdictions at large landscapes, it's possible to make these landscapes engines for economic, social, and ecological benefits to Africa and to the global community at large. But just to say, why are we doing this? Holly already mentioned the statistics, but quickly, we know that there were more than two million elephants at the beginning of the 20th century. And then in the late 70s, there were more than a million. Then in 2014, we know there are 350,000 savanna elephants. We roughly think there were probably 100,000 forest elephants in Central West Africa because the service didn't cover that. So a paltry less than half a million elephants from what used to be two million. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not acceptable. And it is for that reason that African Wildlife Foundation, together with others, are working. What I put here, just to give you a sense, it's, it's an index called the proportion of illegally killed elephants, where the, the monitoring that happens under various conventions, like the Convention on International Trade Endangered Species, and partners in the countries check the cause of death when they find carcasses. 
it's supposed to be below 0.5, below 50%. You can see that it actually went up, and even as we see a slight decline, it is still above 0.5. And what that means is the rate of elephant death from illegal offtake is higher than the rate of natural regeneration. So, of course, what that means is over time, they will be extinct. Now, what are we doing about it? We are using multifaceted approaches, really hitting it across on the ground, stop the killing. So rangers are important, communities are important. Everybody on the ground needs to see something, say something, and law enforcement. When the poachers succeed to kill and try to get the loot out of the continent, we have to stop the trafficking. So we are rolling out methods, which I'll just walk through quickly afterwards at airports, at seaports, to stop the taking out of those illicit you know, products. And then the demand, there is a market out there which is why everybody engaged in this is doing it and taking the risk. We are conscientizing and discussing and negotiating with the market, and the market is global, not just Asia. The US is one of them. So these are the critters we all love. I just decided to put this on. It's not just about elephants, it's the rhinos, it's the lions, it's the pangolins maybe never talked about a lot, but they're actually the most poached and killed mammal on earth. The giraffes, the great apes, so, and the list goes on and on. Now, when I mention a few of them, they are what we call umbrella species. So in the process of protecting these, we don't ignore other species because it's part of the entirety of the ecosystem that functions. So boots on the ground, rolling out technology, ensuring that the men and women that are really sacrificing their lives in the forefront are well equipped with uniform, if they've got guns, well armed. Because you heard the talk about these terrorist groups, they are well armed and sophisticated, so we need to make sure that our, our frontline soldiers out there are able to do that. We use uh, surveillances in areas in particular like um, where there are these intensive protection zones with rhinos where there's 24-7 surveillance using CCTV. Um, and in some countries like Zambia, you actually have a ranger per rhino around the clock and they take turns. I mean, that's lots of money, all because of syndicates that are really selfish and getting money. And I'll just show a, small, a short video here of um, a program we are doing. This has to play. I wanted to show you whatever happened because I actually tested it earlier on. Anyway, it, it, it's just going to highlight the day-to-day -day operations in one of the wildlife ranches in, South, in, in northern Tanzania called Manyara Ranch, which is a corridor between Manyara National Park and Tarangiri National Park where African Wildlife Foundation is co-managing the area with dedicated teams there, using rangers that are well-trained and making sure that we collaborate with the private sector, with local NGOs, as well as using dogs, tracker dogs, that go around the, and are able to sniff to back up what the rangers are able to see. Hopefully we can come to it if the technology works. We actually tested it earlier, it was running, but you know, technology is its own way of doing things. Um, um, then, we, in, South, in, 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 in Southern Africa, work with a conservation organization called uh, Conservation Lower Zambezi, and we do that in other places, you know, with fixed you know, wing aircraft to do aerial surveillances. So the idea is to really hit 
from the air, from the ground, and the emphasis is saying we need to do proper work with the men and women. Then also this video was going to show you some of the work, whatever happened, uh, we are doing in, in DRC where we are using a security company to work with the rangers from the country for paramilitary training, we're using quad bikes, and it's all about the level of sophistication we need to employ because one, that's where the Lord's Resident Army is, and that's where some of the security risks are, and we need to just do business beyond the usual. So that's the, on the ground. Then moving on to the anti-trafficking using sniffer dogs. This series of just shows you the facilities we have used, the kind of transportation we are using for our dogs, and the searches they do at airports and seaports. And the fines on that slide, these are the things they are finding. And then we back this by engaging the legal fraternity in judicial and prosecutorial trainings where what we are doing is to run clinics by country and by region where we bring in the magistrates, the prosecutors, um, the police, the wildlife authorities. These are all entities that have got a mandate to oversee pieces of legislation in a country or in a region. But often they don't talk to, to each other and they don't get the collective strength of the different pieces of legislation they use. So we work with them, identify the strength, the weaknesses, and what they could collectively use to finally ensure whoever is caught committing this crime faces you know, the music and deterrent sentences. We have seen that happening in places like Kenya, in a couple of countries where countries have really committed now to progressively improve what sentences can be done. Issues of corruption can happen, but I think it's getting better and better. That's what gives us hope. And I think part of what we were missing in the past is this operation in silos, where if Kenya is doing its stuff, it does on its own, and then the same thing. So we now allow them to work together. And as a result of all this, we now have dogs at various airports in Teben, Uganda, <coughs> Nairobi in Kenya, Mombasa Seaport in still in Kenya, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, in Maputo, Mozambique, in Haboron, in Botswana, and many more sites are online. And some of that, that slide shows you some of the kind of seizures and progress we've made. But the issue which you only touched about policy outreach, advocacy, we have to talk to the, to the policy makers, the heads of state, so that they at least improve the policy provisions and do anti-corruption you know, laws and stop the corruption and the rot in the government. Getting China to talk to Africa, so that when they are partnering for investments, they can avoid some of the rot that happens as people take advantage of that moving between the continents. Then lastly, I want to just you know, highlight a point that uh, Holly already talked about the US government progressive legal provisions. We have seen the End Wildlife Trafficking Act of 2016, which I allows the US government, as it works with Africa, to identify focused countries, the countries with the greatest need for support, and that are willing to stop this crime. And then also countries of concern, countries that seems to be complicit to the crime um, so that we can kind of tighten the rope. Then we have seen a series of domestic ivory market closures. US is near ban, China end of last year, Hong Kong has just recently announced a plan to do that. We wish they could do it immediately up to 2021. The UK is doing public consultations to, with the aim of closing the markets. We have seen the restrictions in the importation of endangered species trophies from hunting um, because that distorts the market messaging and you can't distinguish between illegal and legal. 
Uh, we have seen destructions of massive you know, stockpiles of ivory and rhino horn. We have seen Africa and China committing as part of their forum for China-Africa cooper cooperation, committing to say we need to work together to stop the crime. So all those are sources of hope, and that's on the League of Fraternity. And then we know that the international governmental organizations, you know, World Bank, CITES, Interpol are working together. So with those words, I'm just saying the crime is real. It's a crisis. The, legal, the global community has worked together in the, from a legal standpoint to try and push this agenda together. So thank you for your interest. Thank you for your care and for your concern. On that note, I say thank you. And our contacts are over there. Feel free to talk and we can chat forward. Yeah. minerals, which are mainly in the DRC. Now, how can I get this back? Which, and I want to show you an excerpt from, good, thank you. An excerpt from a film, Tin Soldiers, which actually Global Witness had done. But this is just an excerpt which Milo Parola had made for us. It's not there. It was right up there. It wasn't Desktop. It wasn't on the desktop. So let's see. We may have it and we may maybe not. Maybe just do a Google search, you might find it. Pardon? Just yeah, go to Google. Search. Exactly. Go to Google. That's what we've done before. Go to Google. All right. I hope. This is so. in progress. We should get this. Excerpt from Ten Soldiers. Ten Soldiers. Yes, but let me look at Google because we also have... And maybe put minerals after it just so it... Pardon? No, wait, 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 wait. Is this better? No. No, 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 here, it's yeah, down okay, here. Yeah. Thanks to Jimmy L, I think we have it. Okay.
Holly, if you could just quickly tell us the nexus between the conflict minerals that are stolen and the militias that are using them, and then Carly can go into the U.S. legislation. Yeah, so um, a lot of what I s said about poaching and ivory trafficking applies in this case, too. Um, unique to minerals um, was a lot Uh-oh. Uh-oh, my name. Kind of a lot of the early links um, between natural resources and the armed conflict, specifically in the east of the DRC, um, and that those links started to come to light in the early 2000s. Um, the UN had an investigative team sent out to do what we now call the mapping report. Um, this massive um, reporting on mostly uh, the violations of human rights against civilians, and you know just how bad was this armed conflict, and what kinds of human rights violations were we seeing. Um, but it included the following, quote, it would be impossible to produce an inventory of the most serious violations of human rights and international human, humanitarian law in DRC without considering the role of natural resource exploitation in the perpetration of these crimes. In a significant number of events, the struggle between the different armed groups for control of the DRC's natural assets served as a backdrop to numerous violations directed against the civilian population. And from that point, that, that report was written in 2003, um, it really become, became clear that uh, more attention was needed um, to disrupt the minerals trade in Eastern Congo. Um, especially because of the tech boom. And um, these are the minerals where most of the uh, kind of most serious violence was going on. Um, the mines were tin, tantalum, tungsten, and gold. Those are four minerals that are required for making cell phones and computers. Um, they're in, a, in almost everything, um, every, every appliance in your kitchen, they're in your car, they're in the airplane. Um, that you fly in, it's, it, they're everywhere, um, but they're especially needed to make um, tech products. Uh, and then of course the jewelry industry is very implicated in terms of the gold market. So, um, and you know, you name it, the armed groups that were operating in the East um, ha have been found to be connected to the minerals trade in one way or another, by and large. Um, today, unfortunately, the situation, although it's much better, and Carly will talk about that, um, it's, I want to underline that the situation is still going on, um, albeit you know, transformed in, and evolved into different kinds of conflict and different kinds of violence, but gold is still a major financer to armed groups in Congo, um, especially Eastern Congo. And um, it's widely exploited by the Congolese army, um, which has you know, a bit of a different flavor to it because these are, the, these are the authorities that are supposed to be protecting civilians, that are supposed to be fighting armed groups. Instead, a lot of them are collaborating with armed groups in the business of gold. Um, one thing I'll mention too is 
Um, gold is very easily smuggled out. It's, it's, it leaves Congo in luggage or shipping containers, um, and most of it goes undeclared to authorities. Um, to give you a sense, there was one case in 2016, very recent, um, a customs agent in Dubai found 150 kilograms of gold in the suitcase of a female passenger coming from DRC on Ethiopian Airlines. Um, investigators looked further into it and found that this woman had flown from Lumumbashi in DRC, major city in Congo, to Dubai on average once a month for the past two years. Um, now, because the UAE authorities have not cooperated with the investigation, it's unclear how much gold she had with her each time, but um, to give you a sense of the magnitude, if you imagine she smuggled 150 kilo kilograms each time she flew, um, that's 3.6 tons of illegal gold, which is $230 million in two years coming out of Congo, one person, um, and totally undetected or at least not stopped by you know, this major commercial airline. Um, and that's where our theory of intervention comes in, and then I'll turn it over to Carly. You know, the international community actually has huge untapped leverage when it comes to the movement of these materials. Um, banks are, could be doing better due diligence, um, trading companies, freight companies, export authorities. Um, they're all either turning a blind eye or, com or directly complicit. Um, and there are measures, anti-money laundering measures, um, prosecutorial measures, uh, due diligence that could actually stop um, how lucrative the, or how easy it is to get these materials out onto the international market and launder them so that they appear to be legal materials. Great, thank you so much. And thank you so much for the invitation to speak here and for your interest in this event. So my name's Carly Oboth and I'm a policy advisor with Global Witness. I'm on our conflict resources team. Um, and over the, so just a little back, background on our organization. So we are an international advocacy organization that works to break the links between natural resources, conflict, and corruption. Um, our headquarters is based in London. We have an office in DC. We also just opened an office in Brussels. Um, and we have researchers around the world. Um, so for the last 20 years, we've done a number of investigations exposing the trade in um, all sorts of minerals and precious stones um, that have fueled some of the world's deadliest and most brutal conflicts. Um, most recently, there's been a, a number of reports um, linking uh, instability and human rights abuses to lapis lazuli in Afghanistan, um, linking jade to human rights abuses in Myanmar, um, diamonds in Zimbabwe, uh, gold in, in Congo and Colombia as well. Um, and so, sort of in looking at this trade, we, one of the things we noticed is, um, you know, the companies that use these minerals in their products, whether they're electronics companies or whether they're jewelry companies, you know, they have sort of a unique vantage point um, to, to, you know, expose um, the really previously secretive and, and dark uh, supply chains that these minerals were flowing through um, and use their leverage as, um, as corporate companies that are buying these minerals uh, to, to ask for change. Um, so, so, sort of following on the, the mapping report that um, Holly mentioned in 2007, um, the Electronics Industry Citizenship Coalition undertook a report to try to figure out what exactly the link between electronic companies um, and these four minerals, tin, tungsten, tantalum, and gold, were. Um, and essentially what they found out was a lot of companies knew who their direct suppliers were, but they had no idea what their supply chains looked like beyond that. Um, and so around this time, there's a lot of discussions around having companies, you know, similar to the way that banks have um, anti-money laundering regulations and anti-terrorism financing um, safeguards that they have to put in place, that companies should also um, be doing supply chain due diligence as well. 
Um, and I just want to point out that, you know, supply chain due diligence is, is not necessarily about tracing a mineral from the mine to the final product. Um, it's a much more holistic view of looking at the risk exposure of your sourcing, of your suppliers, um, and, and having and buying minerals that could be connected to human rights abuses, organized crime, um, sanctioned entities, um, and other kinds of bad actors. Um, so, so supply chain due diligence, um, the international framework was de developed by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, um, about 10 years ago. And it's a five-step process that sort of is tailored for every company along the supply chain. Um, so you have the downstream companies, so Apple, Intel, sort of the big manufacturing companies that we all know and recognize. Um, and then you have the smelters and refiners. Um, the smelters and refiners are not quite as visible, but those are the companies that take the raw mineral ore. Because um, when, you, when you mine raw, you know, mine gold or when you mine tin or tungsten, it, it sort of just looks like a bunch of rocks, um, or it looks like sand. It doesn't really look like much. So there has to be a number of processes to refine that particular mineral um, to get it so it's usable by by manufacturing companies. Um, so the smelters and refiners have sort of their own set of. Uh, of recommendations for how they should be sourcing minerals responsibility responsibly and then traders also um, the ones that are buying from the mines and selling to these refiners uh, and smelters also have their own set of requirements so it's a very flexible framework um, there's a there's five steps so the first step is sort of requiring companies to develop an internal um, an internal management system so developing a conflict minerals policy um, also, you know, making sure that their expectations for sourcing of minerals is made clear to their suppliers, training their staff to understand what kinds of documents to be asking for, um, what kinds of things would be considered a red flag. For example, if um, one supplier is saying, oh, I have, you know, X amount of gold from this mine, which, you know, this mine doesn't actually produce any gold, that, that's a red flag. So those are the types of things that people need to, to you know, keep an eye out for. Um, and so making sure that you have sort of the internal um, in, in, uh, you know, framework to carry out supply chain due diligence. The second step is really a risk assessment. So based on what you know of all your suppliers, all the company or all the countries um, that minerals may be coming from, uh, any transport or transit routes that they may be taking um, to get to smelters and refiners where smuggling might be occurring. Um, you know, basically just looking at what you know of your supply chain, are there any risks? And this really does require talking to uh, the smelters and refiners, because these are sort of the choke point of the supply chain. They're the ones that know where minerals are coming from, um, you know, which mines the minerals are coming from, where there are risks. Um, and so it's really trying to get, a, you know, develop a better sense of um, the risk profile really in your supply chain. Um, the third step is based on this risk assessment, um, the company needs to determine how to respond to any risk, any real risks uh, that they have identified. So whether it's talking with local civil society to further investigate um, the potential, a potential risk of, of minerals funding, um, funding armed groups, um, or, or minerals being smuggled, um, or, or talking with local authorities about the particular requirements um, or mining licenses that might apply from, from uh, the concessions where minerals are coming from. Um, and, and really trying to figure out how you can mitigate those risks to continue sourcing responsibly. Um, the fourth step is essentially just having an independent auditor look at your program to ensure that it is consistent with the international standard. And the fifth step is reporting on your efforts, um, which I'll get to in a second. Um, so, 
Section 1502 was passed um, in 2010 as part of the Dodd-Frank Act, and this was the first piece of legislation that actually incorporates supply chain due diligence uh, rec or requirements for companies in law. So it is a law that was passed sort of in response to widespread reporting of abuses linked to the minerals trade in Congo, um, which requires any U.S. company that has tin, tungsten, tantalum, or gold in their products um, that are coming from the DRC or surrounding areas to do to take to, to implement this five-step process I just outlined to carry out supply chain due diligence and then report on their efforts to the SEC. Um, so. That, that law was passed in 2010. The final rule came out um, from the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in 2012, went into effect in 2013. Since then, there have been a number of industry associations that have created all kinds of pilot programs and industry schemes to certify smelters as conflict-free, um, to certify traders and refiners and their processes as um, responsible. Um, and we've also seen that the DRC and Rwanda have both passed legislation for any companies operating in their tin, tungsten, tantalum, and gold sector to carry out supply chain due diligence as well. Um, China, in, in 2015, the Chinese Chamber of Commerce for Metal Traders has also passed voluntary guidelines, guidelines for its 2,000-some members um, to also be looking into where their minerals are coming from and, and publishing information on sourcing. And um, just recently, the European Union has passed regulations, uh, which will go into effect in 2021, um, that require any company importing any metals into the European Union, this is still um, focused on tin, tungsten, tantalum, and gold, but any metal importers have to, to carry out supply chain due diligence on any minerals coming from not just the DRC and surrounding countries, but any conflict affected in high-risk area, sort of in recognition of the fact that minerals um, linked to conflict, conflict are not just specific to, it's not a unique problem to, to Congo or to Africa. This occurs all over the world. There's all kinds of human rights abuses associated with the trade and export of, material, of minerals. Um, so this is really encouraging and something we definitely like to see Congress look at um, in terms of expanding the scope for Section 1502. Um, so just to talk a little bit about sort of the impact in Congo, um, we've seen that there's been a number, uh, there's been a lot more scrutiny placed on the mineral supply chain and, and whereas, you know, 10 years ago, um, it was very taboo to talk about the supply chains and, and mining, um, it's now something that civil society, um, you know, traders, um, local populations can talk about much more um, freely and, and there's a lot more reporting or uh, monitoring done by um, local civil society and other monitoring committees um, which make their reports public so that companies can, can really start to better understand um, sort of what the situation really is in, in specific mining sites. Um, so unfortunately though, you know, I, I think it's important to remember that um, despite all this, you know, exciting news and, and new legislation, um, that you know, supply chain due diligence really does have a limited ability to actually, um, you know, bring about change and, and bring about peace. Um, of course, you know, in, in the case of Congo and many other examples, you know, the minerals themselves are not the root conflict. Sure, they exacerbate the conflict, um, but until the root problems are actually fully addressed, um, there will still continue to be conflict. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important that we remember that um, you know companies need to still be to still source from these areas um, because in a lot of these poverty-stricken places um, people are, are, are forced to mine for subsistence um, it's really the only available um, source of income 
um, even in these horrible conditions, it's really the only thing um, that they have. And so what's really important is that we encourage companies to, uh, to make their ex expectations clear to their suppliers and start asking questions about how minerals are getting to them, um, what kinds of risks might be present, and how they can work together to try to address these, these risks so they can continue sourcing from these areas just with the extra care needed to make sure that they can say that their minerals have been sourced responsibly. Um, so I just want to go back to a point on, on section on um, supply chain due diligence and public reporting. So I, I mentioned um, that you know we're we're seeing a lot more scrutiny of the minerals trade, and we're seeing a lot more reporting on human rights abuses linked to the minerals trade in Congo. Um, but unfortunately, we're not seeing that. And there's lots of really great investigations at local civil society. Well, civil society organization in Congo have, have published, um, but we're not always seeing that those uh, those risks and those um, those actions are being noted and acknowledged by the companies um, that are reporting to the SEC. And so um, part of this is due just to poor implementation. A lot of companies um, are still trying to get their heads around what supply chain due diligence really is, um, but also limited enforcement by governments. So the SEC, for example, has not taken any enforcement action, uh, despite this law being in place since 2013. Um, so it's really important to keep pressure on, on uh, governments to make sure that they're enforcing um, any legislation or any sort of uh, binding agreements that they might have um, for their companies. Um, but so in sort of in the midst of that, the, real, the only thing we really have are these public reports as the window um, to see what companies are actually doing in terms of changing their mineral sourcing practices. Um, so step five reports, it's this, the fifth step of the, the uh, OECD framework. Um, the public reports are a really useful tool for accountability. Um, so for example, in the last round, uh, or the last report by Apple, um, their report mentioned 15 specific examples of supply chain risks that they had found in their supply chain that they think might be linked to uh, some of their products. And not just, uh, not only did they, you know, uh, um, acknowledge these 15 risks, but they also, for each one of them, explained how they're investigating that particular risk, and they explained sort of what the status of their follow-up was. Um, so it really shows that this company is actually, you know, trying to better understand um, how its supply chain may be linked to human rights abuses, um, and, and um, it's a way for other companies to, uh, investors to see that they're taking this seriously as well. Um, so I just wanted to, to um, talk a little bit about some of the recent attacks on 1502, um, and then I'll wrap up, but just to say that in the last year there have been a number of efforts um, by both the executive and Congress to undermine Section 1502. Um, most recently there was an amendment uh, that was um, added to the spending bill, which has not yet been finalized, that would defund um, implementation, administration, and enforcement of the Conflict Minerals Bill. Um, so we're watching that really closely and, and really hoping that that does not go through. Um, but in the midst of, all of, of you know, several attacks that we've seen this year, it's been really encouraging that a number of companies, um, and uh, including Apple, Tiffany's, Intel, and some other major companies have spoken out in support of supply chain due diligence. Um, and in addition, we've also seen um, investors representing over $5 trillion um, assets under management have also um, spoken out in favor of keeping these regulations in place. So it's really encouraging to see all the support um, and the commitment to response to sourcing minerals more responsibly. So I look forward to your questions. Thank Thanks. you, Carly. And, and Karen, we're looking forward to your talking about the historic ICC case. 
Uh, thank you, Elizabeth, um, for inviting me and also to the, uh, the Committee on African Affairs uh, for inviting me to join you today. And thank you all for coming uh, to listen to us. Um, I think my, um, my role tonight is very simple. Um, can you hear me now? No? <laughs> you have to bring it closer. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> well, I have to get close to it. Um, yeah, so I was just thanking Elizabeth and the African Committee, um, uh, or the Committee on African Affairs, for inviting me today. Um, so I've been asked to speak about. Um, uh, um, the recent ICC, actually it's not recent, it's more than a year now, uh, ICC case uh, involving destruction of cultural heritage in Mali. Um, this is the first uh, ever case at ICC relating to destruction of cultural heritage. Uh, now if I can go back a little bit um, on, on the earlier presentation and, and, and the theme of the discussion today, which is pillage crimes, um, just and, and relating that to the Rome Statute. I'd just like to um, uh, point out that um, uh, uh, um, pillage crimes and destruction of cultural heritage are both prohibited under the Rome Statute of the ICC. Uh, actually, Article 8, which defines war crimes, specifically uh, prohibits destruction of cultural heritage and pillage crimes. Um, but so far, there has only been one case at ICC relating to destruction of cultural heritage, which um, occurred in Mali during the conflict in 2012. Uh, but there have been, uh, while there has not been any case uh, specifically focusing on pillage crimes, there has been um, charges relating to pillage crimes in other cases um, at ICC, and, and this um, charges were brought, uh, uh, charges relating to pillage were brought in the case against um, the, uh, the president of uh, Sudan, Omar al-Bashir. Uh, one of the charges against him is a war crime relating to pillaging in Darfur. And um, these uh, charges were also brought in two cases um, um, uh, uh, involving um, um, uh, warlords from DRC. This is Jermaine Katanga and um, John Pierre Bemba, who was a former vice president of DRC, but was charged with crimes um, uh, committed in Central African Republic. And both those cases also had charges relating to pillaging. But there hasn't been any specific case uh, relating to pillaging as such, um, such as the one we have for cultural heritage crimes. And just to point out that uh, in relation to the two DRC cases, sorry, the one DRC case and the Central African Republic case involving a DRC national, both of them were convicted on crimes relating to pillage, though the main uh, uh, charges were really uh, involving uh, human rights atrocities and pillage was just one of the charges. But both of them were convicted on, 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 on those charges. Um, now going back to the focus of my presentation today, which is um, uh, the case involving destruction of cultural heritage in Mali. Um, um, basically, um, the, the, the relevant provisions in the Rome Statute are basically contained in Article 8, as I mentioned, but these are really not um, original to the Rome Statute. I think the Rome Statute borrowed these provisions 
from previous conventions, including the Hague Convention Number Four of 1907, respecting the laws and customs of war and land. Uh, several uh, these provisions were also uh, included in the Geneva Conventions of 1949, and there are two additional protocols. And um, they were also included in the 1954 Hague Convention for the protection of cultural property in the event of armed conflict. So basically the provisions in the Rome Statute are a, a reflection of uh, what was already included in previous conventions. The only new element is that um, the Rome Statute specifically criminal, uh, criminalized these actions and, and gave ICC jurisdiction uh, to prosecute um, any persons involved in the commission of these crimes. Um, now, just a little background on the case um, involving um, destruction of cultural heritage in Mali. Um, the accused person was called um, Mr. Al-Mahdi, and basically he was charged with the destruction of, um, uh, of uh, religious uh, buildings in, in, um, in uh, Mali, Timbuktu, to be specific. And this involved the destruction of, of nine mausoleums and one mosque, uh, which, of course, were historical sites um, recognized by UNESCO as, as, as um, a cultural heritage, but they were also recognized by the locals as, um, as um, cultural her an important uh, heritage in their culture. They were uh, symbols of their religion, uh, Islam, um, but what happened during the conflict in 2012 is that the north of Mali was taken over by two Islamist, uh, radical Islamist groups, if I may call them that. Um, one was uh, Al-Qaeda in, 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 in the Maghreb, and the other group was called Ansar Dine. And these two groups took over control of northern Mali, and basically um, the government was, did not have any control over that area. And when they took over Timbuktu and the surrounding areas, they imposed their own uh, laws and rules. And um, one, of the, one of the issues um, they had a problem with regarding the practices of the local people in Timbuktu is the way they were using the mausoleums and, and the mosque. Uh, so to be able to um, implement the new rules, they ordered the destruction. The leaders of these two groups ordered the destruction of, uh, of those religious buildings. And Al-Mahdi was, um, was not a member of this group, but he was a member of an affiliate organization which was charged with enforcing the moral laws that were imposed by these, uh, these groups. So he was basically charged with uh, overseeing the destruction of of, of these buildings, and he was personally involved and in the planning and the actual witnessing of the destruction. Um, so when he was charged before ICC, um, he was charged before ICC in September 2015, and the trial uh, started in September 2016. Uh, but at the beginning of the trial, um, at the beginning of the trial, he basically pleaded guilty to all the charges against him. Um, so then, um, having pleaded guilty, the trial chamber ju um, um, just um, confirmed the verdict and sentenced him to nine years' imprisonment. Um, but um, if I could go back a little bit to the conflict in Mali and how the case came to ICC, 
um, Mali, first of all, is a state party to the Rome Statute, having ratified in, in the year 2000. And the government of Mali actually, uh, following that conflict, took it upon themselves to approach the prosecutor of ICC and ask the prosecutor to investigate um, the crimes that had been committed in northern Mali. So basically this was a case of self-referral by, by the government of Mali. And um, following that decision by the government of Mali, um, the sub-regional group, gro um, uh, grouping for West Africa, which is called ECOWAS, actually also adopted a decision endorsing the, um, um, endorsing the referral to ICC. And then subsequently, um, this matter was also discussed by the UN Security Council. And by that time, Mali had already referred the case to ICC. And what the UN Security Council basically did is to support the referral to the ICC and encourage Mali and other states and regional organizations to cooperate with ICC in relation to, uh, to the prosecution of, of the crime of the destruction of the religious buildings in, um, in Timbuktu. Um, so basically, actually, this is one of the cases um, I'm sure we've all heard about, you know, African countries complaining about ICC. But this is one of the cases where actually <laughs> the Malians were not complaining. The sub-regional group in West Africa was not complaining. They were happy that the case was sent to ICC. And the Security Council actually endorsed that decision, you know, uh, encouraging um, Mali and other states to cooperate with ICC in, in, in the prosecution of these crimes. Um, so um, um, w what is significant about this and why I mentioned this endorsement by the, the, the sub-regional group ECOWAS and also by the Security Council is that this, this is the very first time that um, uh, 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 crimes um, against uh, cultural heritage were being prosecuted in an international tribunal. I'm sure there have been other um, national jurisdictions. I think we heard from uh, Jingel earlier on about uh, national efforts to do prosecution. But this was the very first time it was being done at, a, at, a, at an international level. And it received the endorsement of, of key <coughs> bodies that um, would usually have a say in this. And, and this is new because um, I think what happened previously, and I think um, based on what we've just heard on the panel this evening, is that these crimes, um, they are so extensive and so vast, but very little is done about them. And even the fact that ICC has prosecuted this one case, it's just like a drop in the ocean. I think a lot more needs to be done. And we need to bring not just advocacy groups, but we need to actually um, convince the international community and the organizations, the international organizations that represent uh, the majority of the international community to come on board and, and, and strengthen um, uh, the campaign for, for protection of cultural heritage and also to, to end pillage crimes, you know, um, as we heard um, about the mineral resources earlier on. Uh, so this was significant in the sense that the international community was actually including the UN, and, and here I can mention that UNESCO was a partner with the prosecutor throughout the investigation of this case. Uh, they did appear during the proceedings as amicus, and they have been continued collaborating with the office of the prosecutor, and even signed um, a cooperation um, uh, memorandum of understanding with the Office of the Prosecutor in terms of how to strengthen collaboration in the prosecution of um, crimes against uh, cultural heritage. Um, 
And if um, after the conviction, I think let me also just mention one aspect that came out of the, the ICC proceedings because um, following the prosecution, then the next stage in ICC proceedings would usually be uh, reparations. So there was a hearing on reparations and the trial chamber actually did um, make an order on reparations. Uh, basically, um, let me just get the... Yeah, yeah, uh, the trial chamber did make an order for reparations, uh, concluding that uh, basically holding Mr. Al-Mahdi personally liable for the destruction um, uh, for, for the attacks against those religious uh, buildings and ordered him to pay 2.7 million euros uh, in expenses for individual to be used for individual and collective reparations uh, for the community of uh, Timbuktu. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and in deciding on reparations, uh, the chamber considered um, that even though the buildings may not have had any economic value or monetary value, they were symbolic and had an emotional and moral uh, value to the, um, uh, the community, and, and as such, they did suffer loss as a result of uh, the destruction of those buildings. Um, but that reparation order or certain aspects of it were appealed by the legal representative for victims. Um, but that's um, the aspects relating to, because in deciding reparations, the chamber basically decided that only in, in terms, because there were two um, uh, different types of reparations. There was the collective reparations which would go to the community and that would involve the construction of the buildings. Um, but then there was also the individual reparations where about 140 victims had been recognized during the proceedings as, as um, the reparation proceedings who were claiming compensation or reparations of some kind. And the chamber basically ordered that those victims who are directly, whose livelihood directly depended on those um, buildings were entitled to individual reparations. Uh, the legal representative for victims basically appealed against that, saying that um, this definition of victims was too, too narrow and basically asking the chamber to expand it to include even victims who are not directly, whose livelihood did not directly uh, depend on the buildings. Um, that appeal is still pending. I think a decision is expected in the next couple of weeks. Um, so that's um, a background on, on the proceedings in that case. Um, but more generally, let me just wrap up by coming to the issue, I think, um, which, which basically um, goes beyond ICC, and this is the issue of, uh, of uh, cooperation in terms of ensuring that these kinds of crimes are prosecuted. Um, ICC has only done one case so far, uh, but as we know, there are so many other cases out there that have not been prosecuted, and we've already heard from uh, previous panelists of the of the need uh, of the need to improve not just the protection of these um, um, properties and minerals, but also cultural heritage, uh, but also to enhance um, cooperation between the different entities who are working uh, towards uh, preventing crimes uh, of this nature. And, and I, I think one, one of the panelists mentioned that we are all working in silos and everybody is doing whatever they are doing in their own little corner without really collaborating with other actors um, in the field. 
Um, but what I have noticed, at least at the UN in the past maybe three or four years, is that I think the, the international community is beginning to, uh, to be more sensitive to these crimes. And there has been um, um, a lot of discussions at the UN um, organized by its member states, uh, but also in the Security Council, which actually for the first time last year adopted uh, a resolution specifically focusing on, on, on these kinds of crimes. And, 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 and um, there have also been events organized by member states basically trying to bring together actors who are working in the field um, to prevent um, uh, pillage crimes and crimes against cultural heritage. Um, they've been able to bring together regional organizations including the EU, UNESCO, and individual countries just to come together and discuss what efforts, what national efforts um, they are making to try and protect um, uh, these properties, but also in um, investigating and prosecuting instances where um, crimes have been committed. And, and I think I see a momentum moving in the direction where uh, there is greater recognition that this is a vast problem that needs to be addressed by the international community. I think internationally the legal framework is already there. The laws are not lacking. Uh, I mentioned three previous conventions, including the Geneva Conventions and the Rome Statute. All of these provide um, uh, adequate uh, an, an adequate base for prosecution of these crimes. And um, individual countries also do have uh, national legislation. Uh, but I think what needs to be done to improve cooperation and to make the efforts um, more effective is basically to have a system to enhance collaboration between the different organizations and national authorities and, uh, um, and, and the UN, of course, just to try and make sure that uh, um, all these crimes, whenever they occur, either the national authorities take over the responsibility for prosecuting, which under the Rome Statute, actually, they have the primary responsibility, and ICC would only intervene when the national authorities have failed to prosecute. So I think the aim is to and the aim is, I'm wrapping up my last sentence, uh, the aim is to make sure that states actually do have um, domestic legislation that allows them to prosecute these crimes when they occur, and where they fail to do so to ensure that there is an international system that would then also make sure that um, the perpetrators of these crimes do not go unpunished. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. And now we're going to go to questions and the panelists get the first crack at it. Any comments that each of the panelists has or questions that they may have? And Pardon? I see, I see my position to the, to the audience just what? to get Okay, involved, to yeah. the audience. Mm -hmm. Let me take three questions and you will tell who the questions are directed at, and then I'm sure you'll get answers. Yes? Whoever had their hand up? No. Yes, no, over there. Isn't there a hand up? Okay, Chris, Christina. Represents an escalation by the poachers and the cost of 
A second question. Yes, that was yes. Yes. This is for Ms. Masodi. I'm hoping you can explain why the ICC took this legal approach. This is a, this doesn't sound like the normal approach where they would investigate starting at the low level, which is Mr. Ahmadi, and then find out who ordered him to do that. And from what you described, there were two conquerors of Northern Mali who established new laws, and Mr. Ahmadi was hired to implement the laws. And they end up not only only convicting him, but ch but expecting him to make reparations, not the people that ordered it. So could, I'm hoping you can explain why the ICC did that, and if they think that that somehow is going to advance the work of the ICC or of an end to these kind of crimes. Okay, and a third question. Yes, sir. Third. Uh, well, my question is, And do you have Is a question? It in the interest of these uh, countries and corporations to see that Africa become a stabilized country where they can actually handle their own affairs and, and ask and demand a decent and fair price okay. for the resources that come from the country. Thank you. And then, Jamil, I think the first question was, oh no, was directed. Yeah, it, it was to me, yes. Yes. So th thank you for your question. I think I'll be quite quick. Um, I mean, it can be easily subjective. I think we've always lost the men and women that are doing the day-to-day -day law enforcement in the field being killed during poaching. But the escalation where we now see some of the, the architects designing and actually programming how we can be efficient to do that law enforcement being killed or track the syndicates, to me, obviously, is seen as a big threat by the kingpins. So I would almost speculate to your point that likely this is a response to how they realize that the global community is serious about stopping the transnational organized crime so they are kind of trying to to, to take care to take off the syndicates of us fighting that then the second part of the question on whether some of the improvements in the prosecution of only any criminals I would think logically it probably makes sense. Tanzania, for example, you know, we've read about the, the Ivory Queen, the Chinese lady, and there are a couple of cases where some of the, the, the mid-level kingpins are being prosecuted more than they ever used to be. I, I think that's bringing the heat, and I wouldn't be surprised if they try to say, let's try to instill fear by killing. So that's kind of my logical thinking. And the second question was directed to you, Karen. Uh, thank you. Um, 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 let me start by pointing out that um, the Mali investigation is still an active investigation. It's not complete. The fact that uh, Mr. Al-Mahdi was the first one to arrive at ICC and plead guilty to the charges 
um, does not mean the other co-perpetrators have been let off the hook. So um, I can just say I cannot go into details of an active investigation, but I can say that it's still an open case. It's not, it's, it's not a closed file. So there's still um, room for prosecuting other co-perpetrators. Are there other questions? There yes. was a third Sorry. one. Oh, the third one. Yeah. The third one to everyone about the decimation. Of yeah, I think there are a lot of ways to answer that. The way that I'll approach it is to say it, it can be made in the best interest of a country like the United States if consumers and investors use their power and speak out and stand up. Um, we have seen some evidence of that with the conflict of minerals. Um, issue and Dodd-Frank, you know, investors, as Carly mentioned, um, that are worth a lot in terms of um, the how they sort of vote with their wallet and consumers who um, can scare companies into changing. Um, they and and I'll add a third actor onto that, which is the the press. You know, independent investigative journalism does a lot to disrupt where policymakers and corporate policymakers. Um, make their decisions and how they value or don't value human rights abroad, period. Um, and so if, you know, as customers, make it known that you care about this issue. Companies pay attention. Um, you know, there are a lot of different ways to get involved in campaigns and it may seem small um, getting involved, but we are seeing, in my view, an upending of the way that some policymakers and some companies value or don't value certain issues that may not have been in their best interest when no one was speaking out about them. Um, so to sort of turn those incentive structures on their heads by actually paying attention to this for ha having journalists write about it, um, having student activists stand up about it, it, that can actually change the interest structures. Any other comments from well, I'm quick, I think I agree with that. I was also going to comment to say I think a lot of the clean companies in the Western world would love to see their industries being sustained by a proper systematic way of getting the raw materials. So it is in their interest to see some of these rotten eggs that are infiltrating the market by bringing in illicit products, almost creating confusion. So I think there is a genuine interest on the part of the Western world to see the kind of work we are doing to avoid these you know, pillage crimes because they want to sustain their industries in a clean way. Yeah, I just wanted to add on to, to Holly's point. I mean, you know, I think for so long, there wasn't really a, a lot of information about how um, all kinds of resources were contributing to um, conflict were destabilizing um, countries around the world. And I think, you know, with the Blood Diamonds movement and, you know, several years ago, um, now the Conflict Minerals movement, I mean, consumers and the public are starting to recognize the impacts of the purchases they're making and the companies that they're buying from. Um, and I think as companies are starting to look into their own operations, they're starting to see a lot of things that they didn't maybe realize. Um, so for example, in some of the filings that we've seen with the SEC and Pacino 2, a number of companies have said that you know, one of the gold suppliers is the Central Bank of North Korea. Um, and there's another, uh, there's a number of other sanctioned entities, whether it's, um, you know, terrorist groups or, or armed groups um, operating all over Congo or, or um, in Central Africa and other um, bad actors that are destabilizing um, company, countries that should be, that should be partners with us, um, you know, and, and 
because companies are now finding that out, they're working to find ways of you know, not supporting those bad actors, but instead working to ensure that they can support those um, in artisanal mining communities um, who are actually putting in the work to dig out the minerals we need for our products. And there was their first, there was, yes, Lisa. And what is your question, Lisa? Somebody could ask, then we can respond after the other question. There's, there's another question? Yes, okay. what's your other question? So I heard about the role of Ontario, the role of civil society, and I heard about Labour Council based in Africa, and so on and so forth, and the UN. I didn't hear about even ECOWAS, a sub-region group. Mm. I didn't hear about African Union. So what? It doesn't exist. So the African <laughs> Union has the authority for cross-border, it can go right across border. Does the African Union have provision in its charter to deal with things like these? And what, what is your question, I'm sir? asking the question. What is it? Why is it outsourcing its authority to the ICC, to the UN? If it's continent, then take charge and implement those. And to whom are you addressing <laughs> the question? And, and secondly, okay. we did mention about that middleman there, that low-level low man that they threw under the bus. They delivered and threw him under the bus, and it quickly pleaded guilty, right? Because then they wish the issue would go away. Why not get at those countries and the so-called terrorist group who are merely a front for international people such as Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the EU, and the AU? Thank you. And does anyone want to address it? There are no clapping on questions. I, 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 if I would just take on the first comment. Um, I think people need to have a voice. And I think the majority of civil society in Africa doesn't have it because it's about prioritizing what you speak for and the extent to which you feel confident. 
So African Wildlife Foundation and many others are actually African organizations. And there is a network of local NGOs and voices that are speaking for their rights over natural resources and the pillage that is happening. Are they strong enough now? No. And part of the partnership we see us connecting with international civil society is for those that are arguing to strengthen that voice so that the perspectives being shared with the global community is reflective of the reality on the ground. So the balance to which you reflect poor, distraught, fighting Africans and progressive and progress being made by Africans could vary, but that is happening slowly. Is it perfect? I think it is not yet, but it is happening slowly. Just kind of as a common response. So part of our responsibility is to say, to what extent can Africa itself speak for itself and tell some of the truth? And that's happening slow. Connected to your point, African Union, the Apex Governance Body, from the conservation community, African Wildlife Foundation a year ago signed an MOU to be the advisor to the African Union on issues concerning natural resources. Part of their recognition now is the modernization of Africa as it is going, its aspirations under what they call the Agenda 2063 cannot be realized if natural resources are pillaged. So we are providing some of the advice, and when I say we, I don't mean us as one organization, but voices that identify with that aspiration to say, how do you negotiate deals when investment is happening from China, from the US, so that you're not shortchanged? How do you enforce safeguards? So African Union has got a wild, illegal wildlife trafficking strategy that they've signed off on. They have an agreement with China, as I mentioned earlier, under the FOCAC, the cooperation agreement, where combating wildlife trafficking is explicitly there. The next thing is to say the laws are now there. You can walk before ECOWAS, you go to SADAC, the Southern African Regional Economic Community, you go to um, ICAS, you go to you know, COMESA. We have MOUs with those. So what we now need is to marshal the resources from everybody say, how do we help these platforms to now get those legal provisions and buy in into reality? But I think the policy level is realizing that. So Africa is doing its bit. It's kind of you know coming up slowly. Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. Are there other questions? Excuse me. Are there other questions? Yes, sir. Could you speak up a little? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think one of the most important things is really just being informed about the things that you're buying and the impacts that they can have um, from wherever they're coming from and the transport routes which they're, they're getting to you. Um, you know, with, with respect to conflict minerals, I think there's been a tremendous amount of pressure put on companies 
in particular to make sure that they are paying attention to um, to the, the minerals that they're using and the risks that could be associated, whether it's conflict financing, money laundering, corruption, um, other sorts of risks. Um, and it's definitely made them much more mindful of that. Um, and I, I think you know that's, that's the type of approach we have to take with all kinds of resources, because it's not just minerals um, that are contributing to conflict or contributing to inequality or contributing to poverty. You know, it's all kinds of materials. Um, and I think trying to you know, make that expectation um, known um, for what we want out of our commodities, I think is really important. And, and telling that to policymakers too. You know, policymakers, um, both at a national level and a local level, I mean, have a tremendous amount of potential and ability um, to shape the agenda and shape how c companies think about their supply chains and think about materials. And there are petitions. I mean, Jim yeah. Yell can speak to that. Yeah. The African Wildlife Foundation, a petition to stop Trump from trying to defund all of the programs that prevent wildlife trafficking. Oh, sorry. Well, so, so, so following up on that, in, in, the petition is one way you can voice through your constituency to say your legislator, please vote against this. Um, it's a great question, and I think we all have a role. First of all, we are all making every effort to to provide the information publicly on what is wrong and illegal. So when you are armed with that, when you see a product on the market, ask yourself, if you're not sure, I would rather you don't buy, and then you should do the TSA you know, tagline, you know, see something, say something. There are platforms like for wildlife trafficking in the US, the US Fish and Wildlife Service has got, of course they are stretched, but they really have a network of the Office of Law Enforcement that try to follow through that. If you, find, if you have illegal ivory or something which was legal, you want to surrender, there are channels to do that. So there are various ways, and of course there is the whole issue of if you are technically serving on something legal fraternity or maybe a law enforcement person who is retired, you can go and help uh, if you want to give money. So it's a combination of different ways, but awareness is the biggest. And then if there are campaigns, if there are marches, if there are movements, let's be part of it because people listen now. Social media, tweet something, Facebook friends, then before we know it, it's all over the world. So I think it's various ways, not one you know, cookie cutter method, but and hopefully our, our contacts are available with others as well. So. Feel free to and one of the missions that I think, you know, certainly the Enough Project has, and I, I would say Global Witness as well, is to help amplify the voices of number of people that want to make a statement, and you know, that's done through these campaigns, through petitions, um, through especially our company rankings. We uh, have ranked companies in three different rounds. Um, first, tech, and and just recently, tech and jewelry. So. Go to the website, sign up for the listserv from Global Witness from the Enough Project, and you'll get um, actions that you can take uh, that are collective with other folks from the U.S. and around the world. Um, and and it also, you know, the, our company rankings are put out for the specific purpose of telling you, you know, where these companies uh, fall in terms of their practices and policies. Are they leaders? Are they laggards? Do they need to hear from you on certain issues? Um, and just one note to the earlier comment, um, I think the, um, the woman in the back, I, I just want to say, I, you know, thank you for your comment. And there are numerous incredible community-based organizations, civil society organizations, political activist organizations that are um, doing very dangerous work resisting their now illegal government regime. 
um, on the issue of minerals. Um, individual groups in Congo have been writing and talking and investigating on this issue since long before anyone in the U.S. thought it was a problem, started writing about it. Um, and, you know, their names, sure. So Bantu Lukambo is one with his organization IDPE. Um, Nimin Amadamu has an organization, Mamashuja. Um, GAT RN is a community-based organization that we have worked with quite a lot that monitors mineral supply chains in Congo. Um, the Send it up and Asadip? Yes, yep, up, Asadip. Save um, another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, many, many, and uh, you know, one of the awful truths to, uh, to add on to this though is that a lot of this, so I, you know, in my talk, I talked about findings and connections and facts on the ground. We get a lot of our information from sources that actually can't be named. Um, they are in so much danger for doing the work that they do that they ask us not to say their names. Um, hopefully we get to a point where we can recognize them publicly, but right now um, their either affiliation with particular groups and their names themselves can't, can't be said out loud. But thank you for, for your comment because it's, it's very, very important. And um, you know, my apologies if that was absent in anything that I said, that we work very closely with these organizations. and. Um, they're the lifeblood of the of the fight on the ground, and that's 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 ev sort of everything, right? Yeah, I absolutely echo that. I mean, we are always in touch with various groups, um, you know, arranging all kinds of work just to better understand their perspective and why, you know, minerals are mining, or even it doesn't even have to be mining. I mean, what is you know their priority? What issues do we need to be paying attention to? I mean, that's the most that's the most important thing of what we do. Um, and yeah, I appreciate the, the comment as well. If I could just say, I, I see in the newspaper pictures of Togo, pictures of Gabon, mm -hmm. pictures of um, Zimbabwe. Thousands and thousands of people are coming out. There's an mm -hmm. organization there that's doing things, and it's not that they're, they're, they have no voice or their voice is just beginning, little voices. These are big voices and mm -hmm. big groups of people, and they're, they're saying something. Mm -hmm. And actually, just one quick thing. Um, so on our website, I mean, and on lots of our reports, we do mention um, all kinds of groups that we work with, and we mention the, the fearless um, activists who you know do a lot of investigations um, into some of these areas. Um, but we also have this this one feature. It's called Mining for Our Minerals, and it, it gives um, I feel like 15 different people who are in some way affiliated with the mining sector in Congo and sort of gives their, their story um, and sort of what their concerns are and what they want to see for the future. And I think, you know, that's something that we had a lot of positive reception around and something we'd definitely like to continue doing and something I think that, you know, other groups should, should do as well. Thank you very much, all of you, for coming from many different places and for your input. And thank you for your question about what we can do, because there's a lot that we can do. I just want to say there should be no distinction between legal and illegal poaching. It's tantamount to slavery. Well, these days can be legal. Can we talk they, uh, about that later? And these guys. It isn't just illegal. Mm -hmm. What is the distinction between legal and illegal poaching and ivory? No to ivory. Okay, zero. can we discuss that later? <laughs> and these companies that in the United States and Sir, can we discuss that later? They should be sanctioned. These companies are for cell phone for they should be held liable responsible.